0: You can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal Or measure them all by box office appeal But for once in your life Be real! Hello one and all. Welcome to Be Real. It's your movie reviewing and reappraising podcast. My name's Chance Solemn-Pfeiffer. I'm on a solo mission today. If you heard the interview with Cheryl O oh a few weeks ago that ran like a sidecar along our Mission Impossible pod. You know, I got in here with a mic and talked to myself for a little while. But this is going to be a more dramatic version of that. And something we could try a little bit going forward when we don't have something that fits into a full episode, but I'm just going to sit in this room and talk and try not to think about how crazy it is and go from there. So, today I'm on this solo mission because I talked to the director of a documentary called Far from the Tree. The director is Rachel Dretson, who has decades and decades of experience as a documentarian, working a lot for uh, Frontline and PBS. She, alongside Andrew Solomon, who wrote the book Far From the Tree, have adapted that book into this documentary, which sort of roves around the life of, I think, six different um, parent-child combinations. And notably, all of the children um, have some sort of uh, a disability or condition, whether it be Down syndrome or autism or dwarfism, uh, but in some cases, we're catching up with the children as, as adults and still kind of how they relate to their families. So the Andrew Solomon book um, is really big and long, and it was quite successful when it came out in the early 2010s. Um, and it reads sort of like a personal history, but also kind of a anecdotal cultural history of just how parents and children and children who in one way or the other, uh, via nature, via nurture, didn't just turn out how their parents expected and just the rifts and the patterns and the, you know, strange mirror imaging that can happen there. I've read part of the book. Um, and it's a really interesting, uh, read and Andrew Solomon, if you don't know him, um, Sort of a a cultural writer, I guess you could say. His other big book is uh, the Noonday Demon. I think it's called an Atlas of Depression. Um, that one's living with a professional mental health counselor. Both of these books are over on our bookshelf. So strangely enough, by the way, and I had to get this story in because I feel like Noah would kill me if I didn't. Uh, I was saying, hey, I'm going to talk to Rachel Dredson, and he said, you remember when we went to Andrew Solomon's house? And, of course, I said, what? (laughs) I don't believe that I went to Andrew Solomon's house without knowing, sir. But, no, the summer that I interned at the Emma Sweeney agency in New York, when Noah was my boss, that summer, I remember just, like, some strange Friday afternoon, uh, our boss was like, do you want to go to this, like, sort of reception at this person's house? I think the president of... Malawi is gonna be there i'm talking out of turn it was a dignitary from an African country And she was like i heard maybe spike lee's gonna be at this and maybe jay-z too to which i said How soon can we get there? Um, neither of those two ended up being there But I i remember now that this was andrew solomon's house that noah and i went to and it was it's a very uh, you know ornate on the inside brownstone with all kinds of cool decorations and stuff. Andrew Solomon was wearing this crazy green sort of garb um, that you can see him wear in this documentary too. So that's the weird story. I remember very little about the party. I think Noah and I like hung out in the corner and probably had conversations that you would consider just a precursor to this podcast, but that nobody else probably enjoyed. Spike Lee, again, did not show up. Okay, so what do I have to tell you here before we talk about Far From the Tree? We didn't do, you know, a three movie category with it because we, if you notice, we haven't really, I don't think we've done a single documentary on Be Real. Um, In some ways, I think they put a wrench in the rating system because I don't know how you develop sort of inherent watchability to a documentary if you're not interested in the subject matter. The rewatch value of a documentary to me seems, you know, 80% of the subject matter A lot of documentaries, the best, 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 best documentaries are just kind of inherent good-bads. I would say, if you're looking for a rating from me, that's the category that this one falls in. It's a little bit of taking your medicine. But, you know, there's a reason you eat your vegetables. There's a reason you take your medicine. Part of what is so great about this documentary is that it makes you see, you know, people you would probably not normally interact with in your daily life. Um, It makes you see how their lives have their own... Uh codes and rules and frequencies that are not less than yours or are broken, you know, they are their, they have their own rules, their own planes. I think a lot of us in our limited sort of worldview and our privilege, we all have kind of like different aha moments for certain things. And I have to say, maybe if not the first time it had been a while since I had thought about ableism, and disabilities, and whether it's fair to really like term disabilities as such. It's a little odd as a documentary, and I talked to Rachel about this, the fact that it is like adapted, but not really adapted from a book. And it is a kind of a combination of six stories that you know, tied together in sort of your standard, like, I don't know, arcade fire, um, you know, overture, like, oh, and it's just like, it was all very inspiring in the end. It feels a little bit like shortcuts or something, or like a series of fairly meaningful vignettes that have been pulled together um, under maybe an umbrella that is a little, like, less earned, it's, it's not a perfect documentary by any means, if such a thing exists. Um, but I did like it, and I think it's definitely worth seeking out. I'm trying to think what else I have to say, which is exactly what I've been doing for the last, like, five minutes. Uh, one, watch those shark movies. Two, uh, I'm sorry if this audio is a little substandard. Honestly, with phone interviews, you just never know. And I, I did try to mix the the hell out of it. But um bear with me. Appreciate it. Um, very last thing. Oh yeah. The question I asked at the end about mothers, my the woman with whom I'm in a monogamous long-term relationship, Sarah. She came up with that question. I was too scared to credit her in the actual interview. I was afraid that the studio rep listening might be like, you're not allowed to watch screeners with other people. So um I think I'm over that fear now, perhaps unwisely, but that was Sarah's observation. So when Rachel says that's very astute, uh, guess what guys my partner in life is very astute um, <laughs> I think that is gonna have to be it uh, you guys are wonderful thanks for listening uh, I will talk to you next week about sharks in movies big ones medium-sized ones and ones that are all over but right now here is far from the tree director Rachel Dretson. All parents deal with children who are not what they imagine. My parents really didn't want to have a gay son. I wanted to see how other families managed it. That I don't want to know just about families of gay people. I wanted to look as widely as I could.
1: By July, I knew he had autism. And I just assumed that
0: he was impaired.
1: You have to sit in your chair.
0: It was overwhelming, I didn't want it. He was shackled in a prison stripe. You know as soon as you see him, the worst has happened and it is not going to be okay. You go back to when they were in the cradle and you wonder if you let him cry too long. I don't have an easy answer. A mother can't just stop loving a child. Personally, I'm very against the idea that someone is researching to find a cure for my type of dwarfism. It's the same message our whole lives. There's something wrong with you and we need to fix it. I don't think I need to be fixed. I want to start first with uh, a question about just the, the adaptation process. And because I really can't think of many other examples of like massive works of interview and history, heavy nonfiction with a lot of personal disclosure, then becoming documentaries. So... I had read that Andrew Solomon said, uh, I think he wrote in in the New York Times in an essay, that uh, he was very surprised initially when you said that you only wanted to include uh, one person from the book, I think that was Jason Kingsley, in the film. On your end, why was that? And how did that conversation with Andrew go?
1: Well, you know, the decision not to use the same characters from the book, by and large, was made pretty much right away because I really felt like, you know, a book... Um, can the narrator can kind of take you into the past and um, recount things that have passed. But in, in a film, you know, the power is really in seeing things happen in front of you. With only four or five families in the film, it was really important that we film families that were going through something in front of the camera. And by the time we started shooting the film, you know, it had been a, probably 12 years since Andrew started recording his book. I mean, it took him a decade to write it, first of all. So we just didn't think it made a lot of sense to go back to those families, with one exception, which is Jason, because Jason's story in the film, in which he falls in love with a fictional character from the movie Frozen and is living with these two other. Jason is, a, is an adult man with Down syndrome, 41, and he has this passionate love relationship, one-way love relationship with the character Elsa from Frozen. And that was a whole new chapter in his life that hadn't happened when Andrew wrote the book. And so we felt like it was so, so compelling, um, sort of heartbreaking and funny at the same time.
0: What, what was it like to discover this sort of, this new wrinkle in in Jason's life? I mean, what were you expecting versus kind of what you found in somebody who's now kind of in middle age?
1: Well, we actually hadn't um, planned on, on using Jason. And the reason we found out about the whole this whole thing with Elsa was because we called his mother, Emily, I think mostly just almost as a reference, like a a background interview. I was immediately struck. I mean, there's something very poetic about it um, and very vivid and very cinematic, right? He's had this whole life, you know, in which he became, he was sort of a child. He was kind of a superstar growing up because he was really smart and he was kind of breaking all records and... Uh, boundaries and expectations for people with Down Syndrome, and then he sort of flattened out at about eight, which is a story that Andrew tells in the book and we also tell in the film, and his peers, his average peers started to surpass him, and he sort of leveled off and now works in a male room and, you know, lives in a group home, and and there was just something so so, sort of tender about his passion for Mm -hmm. this essentially Disney character, for him, the experiences with all of the veracity of a real, you know, love affair. I mean, for Jason, this is love. You know, this is the strongest he's ever felt about anything or anybody, and he has no sense of humor about it. I mean, he he means it, and so um, I just
0: thought, wow,
1: it has got to be in the movie. <laughs>
0: so I'd read in that same uh, piece that Andrew wrote that he he kind of felt the sting and the immediacy of recounting his own experiences in this documentary in a way that he didn't writing about them because I I think, you know, lack of control and authorship and collaborating is all part of like looking at those in a new ways. But what was it like for you, you know, turning the documentary lens on someone who's also a producer of the film? Is there anything sort of odd about that or anything as a kind of a consummate documentarian that made you feel uneasy at first
1: everything about it made me feel uneasy i mean it was it was terrifying and and it was intimidating i mean i don't know if you know andrew but Chris of is a dazzling writer and um yeah has a great stature as a writer and he's also a kind of somewhat formal guy and um you know he's not a guy who like puts his arm around you right away and sort of you know Makes you, makes you feel like you've been friends forever. It takes time to get to know him. And so I was I was really daunted um, by the process of taking his life, his very intimate life, because the film tells the story of, you know, his efforts to, he went to sexual surrogacy therapy when he was a teenager, trying to kind of beat his homosexuality out of him, and very intimate stories. And so, um, yeah, I was, I was, I was nervous about it, but, um, you know, by the time that we were sort of at a point, a rough cut, when Andrew started sort of seeing the results of our work, um, he and I had gotten to know each other quite well and we built a lot of trust. I mean, it took years, you know, really to get to that rough cut. And so we really had been through a lot, and I think we both felt a lot of trust in each other. Um, And so while I was nervous, I I had some confidence that we'd work it out, you know, that if he had issues or problems, we would would address them and fix them and be able to talk about them with a lot of mutual respect. Um, And that's, in fact, what happened. I mean, Andrew is a wonderful writer, but he's not a filmmaker, and he knows that Mm -hmm. and has a lot of, you know, respect for my craft and my, you know, my kind of authority in in that domain. And so I never felt like he sort of stepped on that. Um, And it ended up being a really kind of amazing collaboration Unexpectedly good,
0: actually I'm glad to hear that So I want to ask uh, about about the interviewing process here I can't remember if it was in the movie Or maybe it was actually in a chapter of Far From the Tree But I I think it might have been in the book Andrew Andrew writes about how a a lot of people that he writes about Have been turned into, I think, like objects of curiosity um, Just by virtue of being out in the world they've been subjected to a lot of thoughtless questions in their lives. So when you're working with populations like this, how, how do you be curious in the right way? And was it, was it any different from other documentaries you'd made? Or was it just a kind of applying the principles you've been honing for decades?
1: That's a really great question. And it was probably, you know, one of the central challenges making the film was these are people. For the most part, who are accustomed to, you know, other people kind of making all sorts of weird assumptions about them and saying things that are just like, you know, insulting. Um, You know, as somebody who is not disabled, um, I was coming in already with a disadvantage. You know, making a film about largely about disabled people from the very small things like language um, to the big things like objectifying the people that you're interviewing. You know, I I had to take great care. I think that I tried to be really open with everybody about the fact that I wanted to learn and that there was a lot I didn't know. And I tried to make, I've been making documentaries for many, many years, but I sort of, and I sort of learned, I would say, the hard way that it's really important to to address the sort of power imbalance between being the, the sort of, documentarian and being the subject. Yeah, that's really been like a kind of central sort of internal dialogue for me as I've, as I've made films. And so i thought a lot about it, and I would say I'm now at a place where I'm much more careful about, you know, just engaging people in a conversation about how how what I'm thinking, what they're thinking, how they're feeling, you know, just being very transparent. Um, and so I, I really did that, I would say, from the very beginning, and I think um, it was, for all of us, um, a, a real growth experience, including for the subjects, you know, I mean, Joe and Leah, for example, the dwarf couple in the film, who were mm-hmm. sophisticated about media and about media representation of disability and were very wary to begin with. Um, I think by now, if you ask them, you know, they would say that it was just close for them to learning that somebody who doesn't necessarily come from their point of view. can approach this with openness. You know, um, it was great to make a film that ultimately I felt like wasn't hurting anybody. You know, I think everybody in the film is really happy with it, the way it came out, and, and that feels great, especially after having made so many investigative documents.
0: You mentioned that, uh, you know, language is on the more specific, smaller side of, of being curious in the right way. I was curious if we could maybe break that down just a little bit, because the the book and the film, I mean, you know, if, if you take the message fully and change your thing, it can be a paradigm-shifting movie about, are we talking disabled? Are we talking differently abled? Is normal or abnormal ever the right word uh, to use? Especially, I think, about somebody like uh, like Jack, um, who's just... is. His brain is functioning, his ability to communicate is just in a completely different place, but seems to function with its own rules. Um, so I wonder: did, did the did the questions that you asked in the beginning did did they change? Did your language change, or was or do you have a responsibility to kind of uh, you know talk to every subject sort of the same way? How did that work itself out? From
1: autism to dwarfism to you know Down syndrome has its own sort of uh, trapdoors that are triggers or that aren't, you know, are out of fashion or are, you know, really, like, offensive. And it's really, ho- it's not like there's one way <laughs> to talk about this stuff. I've made and continue to make, I should say, mistakes all the time. Um, I mean, for example, the word normal is, I mean, that's one word that's, pretty much taboo when you're talking about disability, you know, if you're talking about height, you want to say average height, you know. You just have to learn by screwing it up and I did screw it up. I still screw it up. Um, I'm sure I'll screw it up in this podcast <laughs> but, you know, I think everybody knows that this is, you know, if, if you, don't, you don't come out of the room knowing how to talk about this stuff, you learn it um, and you learn it by making mistakes and by having people tell you, hopefully kindly, that they prefer not to be talked to that way.
0: So Rachel, my I'll wrap up with this one. Um, when I listened to the mothers that you interviewed, they really talked about their their sort of like early in their child's life, their guilt and shame with having carried a child and worrying about the the mistakes that came with that. It really seemed like their 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 guilt took on a different um, form than the father's, or maybe we just didn't see the fathers talk about it. In, in the film, but d- did you feel like there was a difference there? Mm, that's actually very, yes, yes, I do think there is a difference. Um,
1: I mean, I think, you know, when you see the film, the, the fathers are as emotional as the mothers, but, you know, I do think, I, I'm a mother, I think when you have, when you, you know, give birth to a child and carry a child for nine months, you do feel a certain kind, you feel a connection, and you also feel a certain responsibility. I mean, did, did you put something in? your body when you were pregnant that that contributed to your child, you know, having, being autistic or or having Down syndrome or, you know, any of these things. And I think um, mothers mothers ask that. Um, And, you know, society doesn't help because there's all sorts of scaremongering about what you do when you're pregnant. Most of it, in my opinion, is crap. um, But... You know, don't, don't do this, and don't do this, and don't string this, and, you know, it's easy to get caught up in this feeling that, you know, you could, you're, you're carrying this child's future. I think even the, the mothers in the film, and I believe there are two of them who express this. One is, is the mom, Jack, who's a nonverbal autistic kid, and the other is mm-hmm. the mother of a child who commits a murder. And, you know, she asks herself that same question, you know, did I let him watch too much TV when he was little? You know, did I... You know, a million, million things run through your head. So it's not even just physical changes in your child. It's behavioral changes in your child where you feel like, you know, it's your fault. Um, And I think both of these mothers know ultimately somewhere that it isn't. We all look at uh, particularly families who have children who commit crimes. And, you know, more often than not, people wonder what the parents did. You know, they must have done something. Um, when they were raising this kid to make him or her do this terrible thing. and I think for parents, particularly of, of kids who commit crimes, that's a terrible stigma uh, to, to shoulder.
0: Yeah uh, Well Rachel, uh, kind of a dowered note to end on, but thanks so much for your time. Uh, and again, I, I hope I really hope people uh, like the film and thanks for the conversation.
1: Thank you so much.
0: In some ways, I wrote the book to forgive my parents. And in telling these stories, I was investigating the very nature of family itself.